What's going on, everybody? Welcome back to Screen Speak, the podcast that's all about movies, life, and so much more. My name's Jordan Anderson. I run this podcast, Make It Happen, and as always, I appreciate each and every one of you that comes by, gives this a listen, and shows support by hitting that follow button or by giving myself a message or even commenting on the stuff that's over on social, being Instagram and Facebook. If you haven't done either one of those things, by the way, following the podcast or messaging it, why don't you just take care of that right now and get it over with? Seriously, it's quick to do, builds the community up around here, and makes this show reach even newer heights. Think about it like this. The faster you do it, the faster I make this plug section of the episode be until it's practically non-existent. And wouldn't that be nice? Just think about that. Wouldn't that be nice? That's the dream, right? Putting out content without all the ads and plugs. On the one hand, I totally get it. And I do think that when it's done right, it can help support others in the world beyond simply yourself. But on the other hand, it's ads. Ads and ads. And unless you work in advertisement and have some big passion for that industry, it's likely they annoy you and you look to skip past them as quickly as humanly possible. At least that's how I view them most times, unless they're coming from content creators, artists, etc. that are putting them out there for the stuff that I actually believe in. Getting off the subject of ads and plugs, let me go ahead and tell you what you're in store for in this episode. This episode is the second in my limited series made with the Iowa Independent Film Festival that I've since dubbed Voices from Iowa Independent Film Fest. The voice on this one is director, writer, composer, and pianist Joe Garcia. I not only met Joe at the Iowa Independent Film Festival, but also ended up staying in the same Airbnb with him, purely by coincidence and chance. It's not something that we intentionally set up. Uh, And actually, I wasn't even sure that he was there the first night that I was staying at this Airbnb in Clear Lake, Iowa. The first night I was there, I actually had no idea who was staying in the house, only that I knew it was a handful of filmmakers with, you know, names that clearly were not given to me in advance. Um, So when I first met him, it was me being fresh out of the shower early in the morning, and I still had my towel on, I had no glasses, there's no lights really on in the hall, so I was half blind when I saw him, and basically just managed to get a, hey, what's up, man, out of my mouth before I walked past him as quickly as possible to get dressed so that he didn't get weirded out by the half-naked person he saw in the house. Uh, But later on, we ended up actually having a pretty good laugh about it. Joe himself is from central Illinois, the place that he tells me is known for pumpkins and Abe Lincoln. Feel free to use that one the next time you're looking to appear interesting at a dinner party. He's been into writing for a long time, since he was a kid at least, writing stories of all kinds, and eventually that wound up getting him attention from his classmates, uh, his teachers, and of course some supportive family. And with all that encouragement and support, it eventually led him over to Columbia College in Chicago, where he studied directing and screenwriting. He's had several of his shorts actually win awards at various other different independent film festivals, and he himself also hosted a podcast called Let's Go to the Movies. I think Joe himself is pretty down-to-earth, approachable, and he's an all-around pretty nice guy. We clicked on a number of things I felt right away without having to try too hard, including our love of Toy Story and Damien Chazelle movies, though for me the jury is still out on his movie Babylon just because I haven't gotten around to seeing that, Uh, but we definitely got around to talking about that one for a little bit in the conversation that we have. Anyways, it was a fun conversation that was recorded outside at the first after party of the festival. Which is the first for the podcast, I should say, recording outside, and I was pleasantly surprised because the weather was pretty good. There was still a lot of people outside, but it wasn't like so, you know, crazy or hectic that we couldn't hear each other. There was actually, I think, some some ambiance, if you will, that's almost added to the episode as a result of it. So see if you can pick that up when you listen to the playback on this. I'm not really sure if that's just a me thing or or whatever that is, but in any case, I felt it when we were recording the episode. Um, shout out to 173 Craft Distillery for recording there. They didn't sponsor me doing that or anything like that. In, in fact, I'm sure that they probably didn't even know I was recording. I, I'm not really sure. But I'll tell you this. They got a real nice space there in Clear Lake, Iowa, uh, including good food, drinks, and really between food and drinks and a good space, what more can you really want? So thank you to 173 Craft Distillery for not telling me to pack up my mics and kick rocks. <laughs> okay. Let's go ahead and just jump right into this. This is my conversation with Mr. Joe Garcia from the Iowa Independent Film Festival. What's up? Hey. Okay, so your name is Joe. 
We've established that after about five times of me saying that. Absolutely. What's your last name? Garcia. I'm Joe Garcia. Joe Garcia, where are you from? I am from a little tiny town called Hartsburg, Illinois. Uh, Central Illinois, Lincoln, Springfield, Peoria, Bloomington, Normal area. Now, as someone that knows what Illinois is, of course, mainly due to Chicago, what would you tell me about that place? Because I'm assuming, unless like your hometown people are listening to this, the average person probably has not been there. So Central Illinois is a lot different from Chicago. I know a lot of people just think Chicago is the state, um, right. and a lot of people downstate would rather have Chicago as its own state. But um, now, why, wait, why is that? Because they feel like Chicago is uh, for a whole host of reasons, politically, <laughs> otherwise. They're like Chicago is the ruin of this state, law, which I disagree. But right, right. Um, Central Illinois is a lot of small stuff with like. We're near to the pumpkin capital of the world, Morton, Illinois, where Libby's is made. Um, really? Yeah. Okay. Uh, we're near like a lot of Abraham Lincoln stuff, like Springfield, obviously, and like the Lincoln Museum. I've been there like five times when I was in grade school because that's like the only thing we have. So <laughs> right. it's a lot of Lincoln stuff. It's a lot of farm country, too. I live like near cornfields and soybeans, and people are usually yeah. surprised to be like, oh, my God, that's a cornfield. That's that's cows. But I'm like, yeah, that's, that's where I'm <laughs> from, like, you know? So, yeah, it's very... It's very different from Chicago. I've lived in Chicago now for two years, um, considering maybe a move back there or to LA. But like, I love Chicago too, just for the fact that you know it's a walkable city. It's uh, it's just great up there. Um, so I do appreciate both elements of the state, all elements of the state, if you will. Yeah. And how did you get turned on to this whole festival thing that we're at right now? Honestly, I was on Film Freeway, and I was like. Oh, there's one in Iowa, and I feel like like our yeah. story in particular with this film resonates in the Midwest. So I was trying to hit all the Midwest like I don't know cultural center film festivals, but like the the state film fest. So I was like, is there one in Iowa? Oh, let's go to Iowa. Like, now I'm gonna sound a little bit silly on this when I say this because I know what Film Freeway is now, just due to coming to festivals and whatnot, but. Yeah. Is that something that pretty much most any person that is an aspiring filmmaker or working on film or anything like that, does like pretty much everybody know about this? Yeah, I mean, that's it's, in it's, the film world at least. It's literally a website. You can upload your film and then you just look at festivals, submit. It's really easy. Like, it's just you. How long has it been like the staple, I guess, for the film scene like that? I can only attest to like how long I've known about it, yeah. but like ever since I have been a filmmaker, um, it's been it's been the thing that I use to submit to festivals and stuff because I feel like there's cover fly for scripts, which is like more okay. script based. Like I have a lot of friends who are writers, so it's like submitting to those competitions, you use cover fly, but like film freeways seems to be the standard for like these big festivals. Like if you want to go to Sundance, you submit through film freeway. Like that's how you it's, do that. It's that well known. Like yeah. Okay. Yeah. I mean, like I said, I, I've heard about it, but it's like, you know, I've probably, since I've been to this festival, I've heard it, it mentioned like a dozen of times, you know, and whatnot. And I'm just like, okay. And I don't know Obviously. how it became the standard or I was anything, ask but if, like, you, if you knew like when it became that, but someone was just like, go to film freeway, freeway. Like that's where you go to submit. Stuff. Well, and obviously they must have not to get all software engineering, but they must have a user interface that obviously works well and people can utilize it well. Cause if it was broken and terrible, it would not get the traction. I mean, yeah, it's literally you upload your film, you type all the details out, like what genre, title, budget, all this stuff. Nice. Cast. Once it's that you just submit to these festivals, check out. Now going way back to baby Joe. Okay. Like how <laughs> yeah, baby yeah. Joe? Um, how I'm, baby I'm, Joe? I'm, well, maybe not like in the crib, but Okay. At least to the point when you can remember watching movies. Uh, uh, what's what's the first movie you remember watching? Well, if we go way back, like the first like films I were I was obsessed about Pixar. Obviously, like Toy Story was my shit when I was like younger. Like that Toy was Story One. The it's the, the first movie though I saw in a theater, Finding Nemo. Um, okay. I forget how old I, that was like what 2002 so like 2002, I was, 2003 I was something like three. that I remember my mom yeah. had to put me on like a booster seat but like we went we went and saw Finding Nemo and ever since then it was just slowly like my dad was really into film and stuff so like he would have me like showing me the movie review section of the Chicago Tribune and it was just like seeing that stuff was like R.I.P. Oh, okay. Roger Ebert seriously yeah um, and then going from there it was like one of the big ones I can remember when I was like middle school and stuff was Avatar which I, I revisited recently. I was like not so hot on anymore, okay. but like technologically at the time, I was blown away. I was like, I, you can do that. I like, love Avatar. I'll just say it. I love it on all the levels. Yeah. Yeah. But it, that's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So that was a big one. Um, Toy Story, obviously. 
What, um, what about Toy Story? You know, what about it? Just the, the fact mean, that it's like, well, I think it's like the first like 3D animation, technically, right? Yes, uh, that was like the big one for Pixar. But it's like, I don't even know what about it drew me to it. It was just the fact that I remember as a kid, I had Woody, I had Buzz. Like, yeah. I was listening to the soundtrack for Toy Story Two. Like, you, you bet your ass, I was listening Randy to that. Randy Newman. Oh yeah. So it's like, I don't really know how that one gets started, whether than my parents just taking me to go see it, but like. I remember specifically, like Toy Story Two. I have it on VHS. We watched it like, <laughs> like we watched it so much that the like the tape got you know like worn. So it's it's one of those things. I don't know the origins for Toy Story, but it's it was a huge part of my childhood. I think why Toy Story. Not that we're going to talk about Toy Story this whole time. But yes. I if I had to say why Toy Story to me has had its impact and lasted the test of time, this might be a hot take. I don't really know. Okay, but. I think it's because a lot of the humor in it and even the language and kind of how it was written, it was not pandering or like talking down to kids. Like I think frankly to me, some animated movies would do like no disrespect to things that are like very family friendly and like rated G and things like that. But there's humor in toy story that not only is universal, but adults certainly have an appeal to it. Like Tom Hanks is very cynical as Woody. I mean, like he can't stand buzz. He makes a lot of jokes that like the average person would do. And it's again, it's not written in any way that a kid couldn't hear it, but it's written with intelligence and it's, it, it, it's it's very realistic, I guess, how the people talk in the movie, and I think it just appealed to a broader audience than the average, you know, animated movie at that time. Absolutely, I mean, it's like going back to the fact that like the push right now is animation, like, is not for kids. It's it's a genre. It's like a it's a medium, you know. And I think you can see that back with Toy Story. I mean, like, you look at like you were saying the humor, and like it's just yeah. intelligently written where everyone can enjoy it. Also, the story structure, you look at it, it's just like, yeah. it's a really great structural film. And yes. the fact that it's like, I rewatched it, I was like, Woody is not a good guy at first. Like, no. He's no. like, really annoying. And then like, he, there's kind of that turn. So and, it's he's, like, and he's possessive, obviously, and full of himself. It's a, He's an interesting character. And I feel like that's why people are drawn to, I mean, like, because obviously we can follow bad people as characters. Yeah. But I think the thing that like, has been impressed upon me, if they're bad, they have to be at least have some redeemable qualities or they have to be at least interesting mm-hmm. to where like we want to watch what they do next. I mean, to, like anti-heroes, like villains, why do we watch them? Because they're interesting and all this stuff, you know? Now, Toy Story influential wise as far as like just kind of getting into your love of movies. But by the time you then fast forward to becoming a filmmaker and kind of doing that, everybody has inspirations, right? Mm-hmm. You know, everybody's borrowing from somebody or they're doing the whole thing. What are the things that you're you know that you take from or that you 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 know draw inspiration from i should say because it's interesting because i've always had this love of film but it wasn't until my college days that i realized i could translate that into a career so it's like i've been watching so many films up to then it was hard for me at first to kind of look back and be like oh what was my inspiration but like i've come down to these like like I was telling you, like favorite films, not film, but like yeah. This. And for the record, anybody that's listening, do not ask a person that loves movies what their favorite movie is. I mean, at least say like top five or something like that to like give them some wiggle room because it's it's impossible to narrow it down to one. Just kind of yeah. throw it out there. Um, but I mean, like the ones that show up routinely in my filmography, even like little bits and stuff. Like I feel like, like I told you, Whiplash is a big influence. Just in the it's fact a, it's that it's a great one. Did you like I, the short? I've not seen the short actually. Oh, it's been really? on my list. You gotta I watch it. it. You gotta watch it. I've heard it's like a less better version of the. It, it is, but I I think what's most interesting about it is I mean obviously Miles Teller is not in it, and now I can't remember the actor that's in it for the short. He has been in other things that are notable and whatnot, um, but I actually think his performance makes the whole short just have a kind of completely different vibe okay. than what Miles Teller brought to it. That's just me. I mean, the location, too, if you look at it. Like, I've seen yeah. the pictures. It's like, it's it's sterile. It's kind of like... Yeah, it's, I think a lot of it's like, a, um, I mean, it's at least shot during the day in like a studio that has like sun kind of going through it, and that's very different from a lot of the closed sets environments from the movie, and then a lot of it just either being shot at night or on a big big studio yeah uh, or sound got that sound stage uh holy shit concert hall whatever the hell it is i'm, I'm yeah. an idiot so it's fine um no i mean like whiplash definitely shows up in the fact that like i'm a musician like in terms of retrospection the film here at iowa um there's a very distinct like i didn't realize it too it's like 
it's one of those things where I love it so much that it bleeds over into my work. I wasn't actively mm. thinking, oh, I want to like borrow from Whiplash here, but like looking I don't back, think, yeah, I don't think anybody would like directly be like, I'm gonna take from. Them. Well, I mean, like, I mean, maybe, I, Tarant- maybe some Tarantino does a lot of that, and I love the guy, but like he, he does do a lot of that's fair shots ripping off. But yeah, I think with this one. Andrew's kind of breaking point where he's like watching that old footage of himself and realizing why he fell in love with Trump. That's a very, a, a very similar thing pops up in retrospection. It's like kind of the core of this film where like the character realizes, Oh, like I've really gotten away from why I got into this. And right. that's, that's something at least that popped up in this film and just whiplash the style over and over. And Damien Chazelle as a director pops up. I feel like on a lot of my work. Did you see Babylon? I did. I have not seen it, unfortunately, so I can't give you like a take on it. But what did you think of it? Listen, uh, <laughs> I am part of the Babylon Hive. Uh, I <laughs> the, will. Is that, is that their club now? The Babylon Hive. Absolutely. We meet. Uh, no, <laughs> I like at group meetings. I'm I'm here to defend the film. I know a lot of people. It failed. I think box office wise, just because. Again, you started wide, and then, like, you didn't give it time to build up the word of mouth to spread. I know it started off very wide, and then, like, theaters were just not packed. It was also during the middle, I feel like, of a COVID now, surge. Now, like, let's just backtrack for a second. When you say starting wide, I'm assuming you're wearing, uh, excuse me, referring to wide theatrical release as opposed to it kind of going through the festival circuit and building up word of mouth, right? Yes, because I feel okay. like that's a film where needed to start more limited and then build to a wide so the word of mouth helped it. Because, like, also the marketing did a horrible job it was like they just kind of dropped it without much of like they didn't even mention this is Damien Chazelle Oscar winner like that wasn't mentioned at least in the marketing I saw it was just like oh it's Damien Chazelle's next film it's like does the general person know who Damien Chazelle is like I would definitely say he's more of like a you know people in the filmmaking world that, yeah you know pay attention to the trends they they follow the critically acclaimed stuff they'll know who he is but I would agree you say Damien Chazelle to the average person it's not Spielberg recognition you say La La Land it's like oh I, yeah they yeah. might know that which granted Babylon is very very different from his earlier work but but I am curious from just something that you just said about the wide release thing I, I just got to go back to that because. Yeah. You said that Babylon would be a movie that didn't really benefit from going with the wide release first as opposed to going through the festivals. Are there movies that are fine with just going to wide release as opposed to doing festivals? I think your average like blockbuster that has plenty of marketing, that has like plenty of... like Marvel movies at this point do not go limited. They start wide, obviously. They don't need to. That's true. Um, I never really like think about that, but it, it is true. Um, I think there are movies, for example... Uh, bottoms recently like I feel like that one in particular I keep seeing a lot of ads for that on my phone I liked it um, it wasn't all that I hoped it was but I, I did like it and I feel like that one it started out they're, they're dubbing it as kind of like in between wide and limited but like mm-hmm. I know a lot of people at least that I have been following on Twitter are saying like they're not able to find it it's not in theaters near them so it's like right. And it made a lot of money, and they were highlighting like 4.3 million off like an 11 million budget. And they're like, imagine if this was in wide release where everyone could see it, because it's getting that good word of mouth. Yeah. So I feel like it just depends on your film. Like, does your marketing team do a good job? Do they not? Like, you know. Hmm. Marketing does play a, a, a central role. Yeah. Obviously, in the movies, and actually. <clears throat> Weirdly enough, I'll bring this up, but I'm sure you're following the WGA strike, SAG strike, Absolutely. everything like that. I mean, I don't know how to say this like positively, but I do think there is a positive message to this. I think people are realizing through the strike that one of the things that is very essential to a film is public relations. Yeah. Is absolutely the stars or the directors or, you know, producers, whoever it is, going out and doing the interviews, doing the talks, talking with people like myself, honestly, and doing that because, I mean, I can tell you, I'm a person that loves movies and half, maybe even more of the movies that I really like and get into, I promise you, I went down the press rabbit hole and I started listening to a lot of people, you know, giving interviews and things like that, podcasts and whatnot, and when you stop that... Yeah, I mean, without that, would Don't Worry I, Darling, yeah. like, would that whole controversy have happened? Like, right, exactly. Yeah, and it's like, uh, I heard Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, the new movie, is really good, and I, yeah, because of that. the press tour, like, heard it hasn't made it as much time. money, yeah. Yeah, I mean, you know, a personality like Seth Rogen would have helped sold that. Oh yeah, I mean, you know, and I've heard nothing but great things. So I'm like, that that sucks for them. It sucks that these greedy yeah. CEOs are not willing to like look past that. You know? Yeah, I uh, well, I might not be ever 
you know, meant to be a, a businessman because yeah. I don't understand how a Netflix, we'll say the CEO of Netflix, because I, I actually think there was a statistic that came out, I want to say last year, where they showed like his year-end bonus or something like that, and he made like, know, let's just say like $200 million. I'm just throwing a number out. Yeah. You know, some ridiculous shitload of money, and then you're like, oh, I can't you know, increase writers, like, pay by, like, 5% on something, I'm like, get the fuck out of here. Like, yeah. what, what are you talking about? And again, like, I have I have friends who are out in L.A. right now trying to get writing jobs, and of course, the strike, all productions are shut down, no writing is happening. Nope. Nope. And it's like, it hurts me just because the fact that these rich assholes just think they can yeah. mosey over uh, literally the quotes that have been coming out of it I, mean, I don't know if you've seen but like oh yeah bo- I, I've, I've done a couple podcasts on the strike and whatnot so I've been following it very closely the the Bob Iger quote the, the writers are being unrealistic and I'm like you and, need to you need to sit down bud like. and there was I don't know if they got the name of the individual but there was definitely a high level exec that for the writers you know where I'm going with this yes, was yeah. like we need to let them like them let them starve and like, lose, we'll lose their let houses them, yeah, yeah. Let, the, let, let them go fucking broke and be homeless I'm like are, are you insane that's evil like yeah no like that yeah evil is actually a good word for that because that's that's just screwed up you're not even like uh, uh, that's not even valuing the human being and it's funny too to me just because with the whole strike it's funny that these people are the ones who are like not compromising and not doing anything because their jobs ironically are the ones that could easily be the most outsourced to ai the decision making of making a film has already been kind of relegated to ai at some point so it's like your jobs are Mm. literally the one like writer you cannot have an AI write a script. I mean, you can, yeah. but then a writer's going to have to rewrite it, and you're going to pay them less. So it's like... So let me ask. You brought yeah. up AI. We're going to go down this role, this rabbit hole for a second. Okay. Do you think that AI has any sort of place in film? Can it live in film, or should it just absolutely not be there? I think it comes to writing, uh, yeah, directing, specific, acting. Specifically to writing. Oh, yes. writing, no. Absolutely yeah. not. Um, no. I do again. I think it has been used in some instances, like Netflix's algorithm. Like again, when choosing a film, or like I think they've already started doing it for producing films. Which again, we could get down that rabbit hole of like I don't think it's right that studio execs anymore are making their decisions based off of purely profit instead of like risk at times. Like we wouldn't have got some of the independent films of the '90s, you know, that we have um, that we have got before. And so just seeing that now. I think like AI has started to been used already in that format, but for writing, I mean, yeah, I know people who have put chat GPT, like a, a dialogue in there for a script. The script yeah. it turns out mm-hmm. is not good. Like, it, no, like, I, so I, I think I've talked about this before on the podcast, but I did an episode and I'm quite, I'm quite proud of it because it's super experimental. I did an interview with chat GPT. I did. I found a way to have an interview with, okay. with fucking ChatGPT. Yeah. Crazy. And towards the end of it, I have some fun with it, and I tell it to punch up a scene from Blade Runner, but instead of Harrison Ford and uh, Sean Young, I'm like, have it be Ben Affleck and Jennifer Lopez. I want to see how that's going to get written out. Just purely for shits and giggles. Yeah. I mean, did it do it? Yes. Was it funny? Sure. Because I made it funny. But could I say it had any of the nuance or complexity or heart that that movie had? No, I can't take no. credit. I mean, for, no, yeah. no, unless like I, I, unless like I was maybe some like brilliant like film savant that could like take that off the page and turn it into something that's not there. Yeah, but again, you're but reworking that, it a lot. And exactly. Then, like, I I can't take credit for this one, but I did see it where it was like an AI can't have like childhood trauma that it uses in the script. Like it just can't. Like no. That, yeah, it'd be interesting if you actually type in like uh, get write something up with childhood trauma and see what it does. I'm 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 sure somebody's done that. Maybe the computer got abused. I don't know. You, you know, my thing with the AI thing. I mean, kind of past the the subject of writing because I think in the in the place of writing, outside of maybe like doing some like uh, editorial edits or something, or maybe like punching up maybe some social media descriptions to help promote something. Like I I don't mind that to be honest. I yeah. don't. It's fine. I think it's just for me the rabbit hole. Once you do that, then it's like it's like oh. where, is it, where does it stop? And then like they're going to be like, oh, we can use it for this. Oh, we can use it for that. And it's yeah. like the more you use it, the more it learns. I don't know. Ever since like yeah, before the strike, fair. I wasn't as concerned. But the more I've learned about how they're already using it and stuff, I'm just like, it's got me a little worried. I don't know. 
I asked it when I was. Ta- Holy shit! Sorry, this cheese is hot. It's very hot, that, isn't it's it? It's like it's like what you just said. I took literally like a bite of it, yeah. and I was just like, "Woo!" My tongue is on fire. I felt yeah. it right away. Yeah. So, anyways, the people, there's a cheddar in front of me. I don't. I don't. It's like I, I don't, don't know, even want to call this pepper jack. Habanero peppers in there or something. It's like. got something else in there. But excuse me, sorry about that. Um, so the AI, you know, it's a. Uh, it, I, I guess my, my only thought on that is like if there's a couple of things efficiency wise as far as like punctuating some stuff and making it be a little cleaner sure yeah. maybe um, if there's certain roles outside of the entertainment industry that maybe somebody's going to use it to help them with like logistics or organizing something like I guess that's where I kind of like draw the line for myself like I don't mind that yeah but the thing about the film industry and people that write or are in front of the camera, behind the camera, you're all creative to an extent on there. And true creativity, true human creativity is exactly that. It's human, right? Even if I knew that something great came from AI, there's still going to be a part of me that's like, this wasn't, this wasn't a person, like not really. You yeah. know, and and I think that's where it kind of loses. Like, if I guess I'm sound like a purist, it's it's that purity for it. Like, we want authentic human truth. Well, it's like I don't think any of like the great directors, any of the great writers, like no, they could not like you could not make one of those scripts through ChatGPT. You cannot. No. A simple like I don't think you could even like for example Aaron Sorkin like you look at his scripts there's a certain amount of personal touch on there that an AI just can't yeah. even come close to unless it gets like really good in the next like 20 years and we're all fucked but like well let's hope not let's I, hope. I did ask it if it was going to be like Skynet and like we're you know going to you know have it nuke us or something like that I, I, I hope not um, that's why I think we should stop now while we have the but upper do you, hand but do you think we can actually stop because like that's I, a whole other I, yeah I, because I feel like I'm unfortunately kind of a cynic on it, and I think there's too many people that are already kind of buying into it. And, yeah. I, and I think, I mean, maybe, I'm not saying like you can control the direction solely, like there might be some way to steer it in the right spot, but. I think it starts with know. the top. I mean, I think it starts with these, again, like CEOs yeah. who are using it, and they're using it to squander like money out of people and use it to inflate their profits. So if we start there, work yeah. our way down, like it can't work. It can't be started from the bottom up. It's got to be top down. Yes. I'm actually really glad you said that because in my own, uh, my, my day job life, which I won't, I won't mention here, um, I'm an absolute believer of leadership from the top down. Really am. Because it really, it's a cliche, but it does start from up there. Yeah. People that are, people naturally instinctually look up to someone. Yeah. And if someone up there is not being ethical, moral, having any conviction about anything, how on earth could you expect somebody else that maybe doesn't have the will to get there and make some effective change do it? Because I feel like we're seeing mm-hmm. all around us, like, the 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 top of the food chain is just getting wealthier and, and just getting more greedy and not caring about the working class, like us. Right. And that's... Yeah. That's just like outside of film. That's a general problem that I see, like oh, us needing to confront. Time, time will, or uh, timeless tale. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's just we go in cycles, but it's like we need to, especially within the film industry. I think that's why I'm so grateful for the strike because it's like if we don't take a stand now, when is it gonna? The next negotiation is gonna. Did be you like, think we're it still, was brewing? I will say I don't. I didn't follow it close enough to where before I was like, oh, but I was still in college at that point, and one of my professors is like, he's like. I've been watching this. He's like, I, I have a feeling in five months we're going to have a writer's strike. Oh, so he, did, he was calling it. We did. Because yeah. like, there was some article that came out that he read and he was like, I, he was around for the last one in 08. And yeah. he was like, I have a feeling another one's coming. And it did. And it's crazy. The industry has just evolved so much since 08. Like, Streaming. In, incredibly so. And I do think the pandemic actually, my opinion, accelerated the the nature of the industry. Yeah. Obviously, streaming became much more of a comfortable thing then. It was yeah. already popular, but yeah. certainly way accelerated its growth and popularity. But that's why I'm glad, you know, I hopefully this makes sense to people, but... That's why I am so glad to just see people here yes. at the film festival. Um, not that I don't think streaming has its place. I, I, I think it does. There's content that can be shown there that's yeah. not really going to be available elsewhere. But <sighs> there's just stuff like this. I'm sitting across from you and talking to you. I never met you up until like a day ago. Yeah. 
that doesn't happen without this. Right. Being at this after party right now for the film festival doesn't happen without this. Right. Us having a dialogue and spreading conversation like this does not happen. And I might sound a little self-righteous on this, but damn it, art makes change happen. Yes. It affects it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's like, I think streaming is a... There's a bunch of issues with it. I think, like, in premise, like, great. Um, I think I just saw my Hulu subscriptions going up again. It's like, okay, like, why are we continuing to raise prices, limiting selection, doing all this? At the same time, streaming right now is giving filmmakers like Scorsese, Fincher, like, the money to do these projects that, like, they can't get in theaters. So there's that, where it is a good factor. At the same time, it's producing so much... I don't want to say garbage, but like There's so much, noise. so much stuff that like I I'd never even heard of some of these films, like the Gal Gadot one that was like yeah, the, one, was I was the like, Hearts of something. I was like yeah, I never I heard know. of this. Is this is a fake movie? Like, but it's producing so much of that where it's like <clears throat> they're not real film. And I do get the argument behind that because it's like I don't know. To me, like a real film, you know, it's coming out. You like I don't know. The, there's something again about the theatrical experience that I will always prefer. I think streaming can be used in great ways. Like you look at Palm Springs back in COVID, that was yeah. great, and I feel like the way it was utilized on streaming was great. Oh, another one this year that I really, really liked that hasn't gotten the traction was Rye Lane. I don't know if you've seen it. What what is it? Rye Lane. Mm, it's wow. um it's a rom com on Hulu. Okay. Uh, I don't I don't hardly see anything on Hulu, so that's just it's, me. It's it's great, and I mean it's not getting the traction it deserved because it went straight to streaming. So there's like there's issues with that too. I think <clears throat> streaming in premise though. It's great. I mean, it's. it's yeah. I remember when I used to have Netflix when it first like was a streaming, and it's like this is great. But since then, it's become unchecked, and like people have used it to get richer and not pay the creators. And I mean, I was talking to you about Aaron Paul getting nothing from yeah Breaking Bad. Breaking Bad, despite it being the number one show on Netflix, that's insane. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like no residuals whatsoever. Let, let, let me ask: not that you're a business manager for Aaron Paul, or we yeah. we both know the full financial figures and facts, but yeah. say. Say he was going to get his due, yeah. right? What's fair? I mean, like, what, like, what is a realistic figure for him to be fair? I mean, I'm not oh. saying like I know exactly, but I feel like that kind of helps the conversation if we start kind of throwing out. Well, if some it was stuff. up to me, I think it would be like he would not maybe get more because he's Aaron Paul, but like, right. I think there would be a percentage that every actor would get <laughs> yeah. from these, and say like, oh, if it. If it's Netflix, if it increases like and goes in the top ten for so long, there you add more to that, and like it, it's based on how it well it does, which is another issue because the streamers aren't releasing the numbers. Speaking of the numbers, because I would absolutely agree, you got to base it off of data yeah. and how the show's actually performing, whether it's in America, overseas, yeah. whatever. But that's one of the issues I actually have predominantly with streaming is that I don't frankly know if the artists that are producing the content and creating it, I don't know how much of it they really get. I don't. Now, that's not to say that if I go to the theater, I know exactly how much they get from that either. Or if I buy their Blu-ray or DVD. But I still feel like it attributes more directly to them. The profits do for that. For theater, they're not... The box office is not a factor in streaming. Which is, uh, again... Right. Like Barbie, recently. Like, Greta Gerwig and Margot Robbie made so much off of that box office percentage. Um, So it's that case where streaming doesn't have that. Sometimes they'll pay, like, your Martin Scorsese or David Fincher, like, $200 up front just to... Because it's like recouping that box office. Sure. So it's like with Netflix and the streamers, it's like you have to negotiate. And for these smaller filmmakers, they can because they're not in that position. No. But having to negotiate, oh, I want this because this is what I would have got in theaters. If you can't match that, I will just go to theaters, which then sometimes they can't because of the whole distribution with theaters right now is kind of a messed up. Thing, Let me ask you this on the subject of theaters here, yeah. because I, I have a strong opinion about this. We'll okay. see, see if you can have something similar or yeah. not. It's fine. I'm respectful. <laughs> um, I personally think that studios, uh, the distributors, however it actually works, I don't think that they give theaters enough, personally, uh, profit. Okay. I think that sometimes... It hurts the pricing of the theaters themselves because I hear all the time that movie theaters are too expensive. If people have families, they got kids, it's like, you know, 80, 100 bucks to go out, popcorn, the whole thing. 
and I don't know, I just I feel like the studios or the distributors or both, however it is, could give more money to the theaters and I have I just feel like there's something wrong with the profit sharing model of theaters and the studios themselves. But let me also be clear, I'm not looking at these numbers, I don't have the facts in front of me. Yeah. But instinctually I'm just like, there's something really wrong with that and we need to count on theaters to continue the theatrical experience and if they have to, you know, jack up their prices or make popcorn gargantuan, especially in the streaming world, I mean, short of hosting like a film event or something like that, I don't know how you're going to get the butts in the seats. It's a tricky, it's yeah, a multi-faceted thing because it's like, I think the numbers are like, uh, the studio gets 50% of the ticket. So it's like, Yes, I mean they could be giving more to the theater, but then the theater inflates the concessions by so much, where it's like they do they make it back. So it's like, yeah, I mean if if you were to do a thing where the studio gets less from the ticket, and then that in a way the theater can lower like the inflation of the concessions, maybe. But then it's like, right? I think the issue behind the whole theatrical experience is again it starts from the top. It's the studio execs not choosing the films that. Again, that maybe are going to be risky that could pay off really well. They're choosing the safe stuff. Like, for example, any Marvel movies in the last couple of years, I think it's just yeah. been like, check the box is kind of like, we'll put I it think, in the theaters. I think that narrative is changing, though. Know? I, 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 I feel it, at least yeah. in the air and the pulse or whatever you want to call it. Yeah. Um, which, I mean, yeah. I mean, everybody says like Marvel fatigue and things like that. You could call it that, but. I'm going to go past the fatigue, because I think superhero is something that sells. I mean, it does. Yeah. People like the comic book stuff, but the problem is lately, in that specific world, the story just hasn't been there. The Absolutely. connective tissue is gone. Absolutely. And that's the main problem that's there. If you have that connective tissue and you have heart and good characters, damn the genre, it's going to make money. Right. I mean, again, like it's that's another like multifaceted thing where it's like, yep. I think... Marvel movies recently just the story has not been there like Guardians mm-hmm. 3 did really well because I didn't I didn't like it as much but like the story was at least there it and felt it like it was made a, by a human like yes and it also <clears throat> excuse me it's that damn spicy cheese <laughs> it also had established characters from before there was an arc that had been building you yeah. know so it had some build up and lead up to it I mean I was there opening night for Mar- uh, Endgame it yeah. was like it was incredible. It was such a it was one of my favorite theater experiences. That being said, yeah. I don't those are movies, it's interesting. I don't rewatch a lot of them. Sure. It's like once it's like, okay, that was good, and I'm mm-hmm. done. Uh, what are stuff that you rewatch? Of the Marvel films or no, just, just re- movies. Um, really quick of the Marvel movies. I love the first Guardians. Oh my like that was I mean, it's it's, it, it's fantastic. It's, it's great. Um, movies that I tend to rewatch uh, the one I mentioned to you earlier Phantom of the Paradise from the 1974 well, I'm gonna um, have to check that out I've not seen De Palma, it it's I like I've Palma. been getting I've been going on a rabbit hole of him recently and this one a friend showed it to me like back in 2020 and the first time I watched it, I was like I don't know what to make of this it's strange it's just like again I comped it to Rocky Horror it was a year before Rocky Horror I feel right. like it had a lot of things that Rocky Horror did in 75 or, um, or whatever year that was, but <clears throat> it's strange. It's a combination of Phantom of the Opera, Faust, uh, the picture of Dorian Gray, and it's a musical too, and it's like campy, over the top. So it's very strange in a bunch of different genres that didn't pick up with audiences back then. And the fact that you're saying that this is De Palma is actually interesting because I would not attribute any of that no. to him. No, and it's like, it's a satire. Or not even a satire, but like a criticism on the music industry as a whole, which I love. It's like, you're going to sell your soul to these people and they're going to rob you until you're dead. Oh, and it's up. an interesting, I, I don't know, it's just a very interesting take that I love. I've seen it like 15 times since. I 15? Could, I could, I put it on, it's my comfort movie at this point. It's also just mm. one of those films that there is a montage in it when it's the Phantom's theme song montage. Yeah. As like time is passing. I have wanted to emulate that so bad in my films ever since. Like I've been chasing it. I tried to do it in retrospection with a shot. It didn't quite pan out, but I'm still I'm gonna be chasing that for the probably the rest of my career. I feel like I'm gonna call this the multifaceted episode where I yeah. I'm giving teases of this, but I gotta ask you something. The comfort movie. Yes. Right? I absolutely could do a podcast talking about that, but for yourself, one, I'm just glad you're acknowledging they exist. Because yes. they do. Oh yeah. What makes a comfort movie a comfort movie for you, Joe? Oh, because obviously it's so individualistic to you. Uh, 
So for me, or just like what I think makes a comfort movie for everyone? No, for you. For me. Yeah. Uh, it depends on the movie, but I feel like it has to be rewatchable. Well, a, it has to be rewatchable. Right. No matter like if it's serious, like I've rewatched Inside Lewin Davis a lot at this point too, but it's yeah. it's very different from Phantom of the Paradise. So now, it's like, sorry, real quick, yeah. quick detour on that. Yeah. Have you met Jim, uh, Jim over there, Jim Brockham? I do not think I have. No. Okay, so... Just be- simply because you mentioned that, because I recorded with him earlier, uh-huh. he was uh, a body double for John Goodman in that movie. No way. You can talk to him about it. He's I... met the Coens. He knows, like he, wow. he he had like dialogue with them. Like he worked on the film for like I want to say like a day or two or something. Yeah. But if you like that movie, he literally talks about it. It's one of the highlights of his life. Wow. Talk to him about it. You'll make his day. I will definitely talk to him <laughs> about it. Yeah. I mean, but I think for comfort film, it's like <laughs> it depends person to person. For me, yeah, I don't think there's a set. Form it's got to be one of my favorites, obviously. Of course, yeah. uh, one that's like I had not seen embarrassingly enough until recently that I think is going to become a comfort movie, oh, is, especially me. now that Falls rolling around when Harry, when Harry met Sally. Yeah, yeah. I saw it recently for the first time, like within the past year. I was like, oh, oh this dude. is like this is peak rom com. Like this is just <laughs> it. It doesn't get better than this. You know, there's a short list that I think every filmmaker has of the movies that you wish you could basically give yourself amnesia to and re-experience watching them for the first time. Yeah. And I bet that would be one. Yeah. Where you're just like, I'll never get that back again. It's it is interesting to me how I've found for myself that a lot of times over the years my thoughts will change. Like in San oh, yeah. Davis, the first time I watched it, I was kinda like Okay, yeah. this this kind of yeah. happened, and then I rewatched it recently. I was like, "Oh yeah. yeah, oh yeah." It's it's interesting how like there's so many of those films where it's like you come back to them and it's like, "Oh, yeah. I don't know what I didn't see in this the first time." Like, yeah, I think a movie like that that comes up, and we talked about this. I I want to say it was outside of the Lake Theater was when we were kind of talking about top five movies and things like that. I, I mentioned Lost in Translation. Yes. Now I know that movie gets a lot of love in the indie community, Sophie Coppola and the whole thing, but. Yeah. For that, that's always been a comfort movie for me because it captures this very, very distinctive feeling, I guess, for lack of a better word, of loneliness but comfort kind of at the same time. Okay. Because the movie is very melancholy, I would say. I mean, it has moments of joy and stuff, but it's ultimately like a man that's experiencing a midlife crisis, if you will. He's kind of lost his purpose almost. He seems kind of aimless. Yeah. But I don't know. Like it's there's something about just the the way that the movie paces itself. It's not in a rush. It has a great soundtrack, um, still, great direction behind it, I and it's like I, it. I I can watch it when well you gotta watch it. I, I mean, it's, I, I I hate being that guy that does it. Oh, you gotta watch it, but. It's one of it's those, it's like, it's been on my list, and it's just like, ah, oh, I haven't got to it yet. It hits me in the feels, for lack of a better word, because that is a go-to movie where it's like, if I had, like, a shitty day, or it's rainy out, and I just, like, kind of want to watch a movie that quite literally relaxes me, but also makes me feel like you're not alone, I don't know. That's that movie for me. Yeah. I mean, it's, uh, it just does it. Right. It just does it. And so, I've probably seen that, um, I mean, it's really hard to put a number on it, but I'd probably say like 30, 40 times. Something like that. Wow. O- over the span of whenever it came out, 2003, <laughs> I want to say. Yeah. Um, but I love that you brought up comfort movies, man, because, I mean, I love watching new stuff. I do. But I also love going back to the stuff where you're just like, ah, oh, shit. It's it's familiar. It's there, it's there for you no matter what. Yeah. And it depends, like... Again, Whiplash, I don't know if you would call that a comfort movie, but like I've rewatched it enough at this point where it's like it's not comfort in the fact that it's a very serious subject matter, but a comfort sure. in the fact that like I would love to make something like that someday. Yeah, you know. Now let me ask you this on the Whiplash thing. Yes. So gotta ask because not the ending of it, because the yeah. ending I would say it leaves it kind of hanging to the ambiguity side where it's just like, did basically his over-harshness justify his brilliant performance? The You know, did the madness justify the teachings and everything like that? But I'm kind of wanting to get your take on that. Was it worth it that he went to the lengths that he did? Or are they both correct or wrong? I mean, that's the dilemma of the movie is it's like the art is the art, but then the guy was I think crazy. that's what makes it so interesting. It's like... There is no definitive yes or no answer. It's like, yeah. Fletcher, if he didn't Fletcher, push. Fletcher was an asshole. And I think you could argue he could have got there. Uh, Neiman could have got there through other methods. Sure. 
but he did get there through Fletcher's methods, and he was right that like the greats have been developed through shitty yeah. like circumstances, like um, Coltrane and like all the people he references. But at the same time, it's I think it's more interesting. Like Fletcher is a very interesting character in itself, but like yeah. it's more interesting to look at Andrew and his character at the end, just in the fact that like. Oh my! Like the ending is one of those where, in in the moment, you're like, "Oh my God, he's done it, he's beat him." But then it's like you step back and realize, "Oh, like he's lost all of his humanity." Like what? Right. At what cost? You know, it's one of those. The more and more I watch it, it's kind of horrifying. It's like, yeah, is he going to be like Fletcher from now? And is he going to like lose all sense of it? Like the yeah. the scene with him and Melissa Benoist when he breaks up with her. It's like, yeah. I can't. It's so cringe. It's just like you could have had both and like perfectly done it but like again because of the influence of Fletcher he was under that spell so it's a movie I could talk at absolute great length on weirdly enough I've never done a dedicated podcast so if you come back okay you want to come back I would do a whole episode talking about whiplash yeah, I could sure. do it um, my take on it is it's sort of similar I mean not to like give a cop out I'm not trying to because it'd be nice to just give a definitive yes. you know just be like yes yeah or no but I think where I kind of left that movie from is I was just kind of wondering kind of what you were saying. Just basically, like, do you have to push to get the art? Is that the only way? Like, I, is yeah. it possible to get the art without that kind of a push? I think there's a level of healthy push. I think yeah. the level to which Fletcher took it was unhealthy. In your own life, have you had somebody push you? Like, where you oh. are recognizing that, like, they are pushing me? Absolutely. I mean, like, yeah. without push, there's nothing. But, like, there's a level of put like I, I don't know what you would define by like the push but like if there's I, someone I, I, like, always it, being it, like you could do better you could and it, it was like, if, yeah. if I would def- no I think I, if I would define the push in the context of whiplash I think it would be somebody that is purposefully challenging you and kind of seeing that you have a limit and they're trying to get you to cross it a little bit is it abusive or is it just like pushing you because like that's 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 the that's the line right yeah because i think the abuse i don't think it's not acceptable but yeah i mean i I don't want anyone to throw a symbol at you like as a director (laughs) i think there's a level to which the actors can kind of get complacent and there's a way to push them without being like abusive about it i think there's a way to be like okay like one of the greatest things i feel like i've learned as a director is like pulling the actors aside individually after a take and just being like especially when it's not in front of people they don't feel humiliated and stuff so you bring them aside you talk to them and be like hey I'm really going for this blah 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 like a specific active verb and it's like you take that then they come back and they're reinvigorated it's like when you don't humiliate them but you still push them that's where I feel like you can get and results and I think you're you're taking it from approach of respect as well yes because you're already acknowledging that if I do this in front of an audience obviously there's shame or humiliation or whatever right. you want to attribute to that so there's a respect level right there that a person just instinctually will recognize hey yeah. this person is not making a fucking spectacle out of this they're, right. they're trying to level with me oh there, there has to be push yeah but it's like how you do the push it's how you are you diplomatic about it are you like an yeah. asshole like fletcher was i would say that any of the best times i've ever been pushed in my own life it's usually been to uh just somebody being very direct with me yeah not dickishly or you know yelling or trying to get me to cry or something like that because lord knows Fletcher tries to get him to cry (laughs) multiple times Uh, but it's just more somebody I think giving me context as to why they're telling me something and that's something I try to tell people a lot outside of even film like if you're needing to have uh, a crucial conversation with somebody be deliberate in what the intent is be like hey I'm here because I want to talk about this my goal with this is this this and this I want to hear what you have to say about this. Like, be so fucking blunt and almost robotic about it that there's no, there's no air for like a mind game thing. Where it's just like, what do they really want? What are they trying to do? Absolutely. No, fuck that. Like, I'm I'm laying it out here right now, and I'm doing it because I respect you. I mean, I love constructive criticism when it comes to film. Like, yeah, because it's like I don't feel like, at least to this point, I have hit something out of the park, done something perfect. It's like there's always room to improve. And especially in film school, I loved like constructive critic because it's like, yeah. okay, tell me what you think is wrong with this, and then I can kind of jump off that and be like, oh, I can do this to kind of improve that. And yeah. it's because again, I feel like we are all still learning at things. Like we are never going to be fully perfect. It's like how you, it's knowing how to respond to constructive criticism. It's like 
oh yeah I could have done that but like there's sometimes in films I made where I was like yeah like I could have done that a lot better but it's like knowing the next time it's like I'm not going to do that you know I think you know life it's a lifelong journey um, I'm a big believer of life learning all the yeah. way like if I ever am like you know even six years old and I'm like an expert on everything you take me drag me in a corner and slap my slap me in the fucking face yeah because I never want to be that guy. Yeah. There is too much damn knowledge and information in this planet that can fit in my head. Right. It just will not happen. Yeah. Um, and that's actually one of the things I think I really gravitate and love about the filmmaking industry, entertainment industry, or creatives or art, whatever you want to attribute it to, is that everybody in this field kind of understands that they're in a constant state of growth that they're in a constant state of change. The artists that they are right now, it doesn't mean that they will be that in five years from now. I like that. Yeah. It just shows, I think, a level of realism and practicality that other levels of industry, I don't think they open their minds enough to, to that process. And I really like that filmmakers at least tend to open their minds a lot more to possibilities and don't take it so personally. I mean, you look at Though any, there's some art. I mean, some like treat their art very precious. I right. get it. You look at any filmmaker's career, they improve. Like it's like yeah. my one of my favorite directors is PTA and like yeah. looking at his films he gets a lot like, of love. It's just like the way he has evolved and it's like looking at my own filmography. It's like Yeah, how many films have you made? I didn't even ask you that. Oh, uh, let me think. So 3 <laughs> 4 in 2020, I went off then um then like one, two, three, four in film school. This one, the web series. I'm probably at like ten or eleven by now. Okay, that's good. Um, but looking back at the earlier ones, even like com- I, I love them, but like looking back, it's like oh, those you, were you cringe a little. Yeah, those were my first. Um, it's got to be a first though for everybody, right? It's like that's yeah. knowing it and like retrospection. This film specifically in Iowa, like this is the first film where you should I'm, say the name of the film. By the way, if, if we haven't already, I don't think we did. Maybe not. Retrospection. It's called. Uh, it'll be out on YouTube, Vimeo, hopefully in the next couple months. Uh, but wanted to debut it here first. Uh, obviously, follow Joe on his social media, and obviously he'll post it on there. Yeah, but it's it's one of those. I I feel really proud in the fact that like my vision is 100% in every frame in this like and this is the first time I can truly say that so what I, made it different on this to get the vision there as opposed to the others I, I spent a year working on the script so there was that yeah. uh, went through like eight or nine drafts like I I was because I had like I helped run a screenwriting club at Columbia and so like I would just take it to them and be like hey guys here's the new draft and they were like oh my god this again but <laughs> no and they were like okay I feel like it's getting better but here's some areas and I was like you're right like because right. there's a certain point when you write a script where you become biased towards it it's like well I wrote that you know like yeah and so it's like getting that other feedback I feel like like a writer's room environment is so crucial and it helped I know the script the original script versus this end script would not like I'm so glad it ended up this way yeah. and it took me all that time but it, it's been a year for that then really an in-depth pre-pro where I knew all the locations I wanted to get just because they were in the central Illinois area. So I had access to those ahead of time, just really spending the time on pre-pro, even though it was only like a month when we decided like we had the time to do it. Uh, and then we started fundraising. So it was like, it was a mad dash, but spent plenty of time in pre-pro, like really talked with my DP and I mean, I don't know. We were just so open on set to collaborate and like if things didn't work out, like, being open to change things to how like my vision was still there, but like in a different way, you know? Yeah. Um, and especially the song in the film, like that was a big part since the beginning. So like seeing that come to life was like really eerie for me, just in the fact that it's like, Oh my God, that's, that's kind of the first time that montage at the end of the film, which if you see the film, you'll know, uh, that's kind of the first time where I was like, that came out close to what I pictured it to be, which was yeah. just like very eerie for me. Why is it eerie? Just the fact that, like, I feel like at our level, at least, like, working on a limited budget, you have to compromise with a lot of things. Sure. So, like, you're never going to get exactly what you picture at first just because you're going to have to compromise on locations, like camera quality, sure. blah, blah, blah. Yeah. But this time, the mon- like the the song bit at the end of the film, like, I had very heavily conceptualized that in pre-pro, and it turned out very eerily I was like wow this is like a new feeling that I'd never had before you know Mm -hmm. seeing that really come to life and really be almost as I pictured it completely now 
One of the last questions I'll have for you, because I, I need to get some more food. Same, yeah. Assuming that the charcuterie board's even intact. Absolutely, I, yeah. I have no idea. Oh, it is, yeah. Um, you know, getting, getting the vision intact, I uh-huh. mean, obviously incredibly important when you're working with a crew and you have people i think it's not that it makes it harder but in the way it does because you know you get more cooks in the kitchen it's possible it gets compromised right but i guess when you do get the complete vision out there and it's there for people to see i mean what do you hope that people kind of take away from seeing a complete vision that you put out there I mean, obviously, now obviously we're talking about just this movie. It could be different for the next one. I understand. That. Yes, I. I mean, I hope obviously people at least get. So- I love that film is so interpretive in the fact that like you can take something different away from it than I necessarily had. Sure. At the same time, it has to be in the same vein of what I was trying to say with this. Like, mm-hmm. it can't be completely off the mark, you know. But it, it, as long as it's in the same vein, maybe you took something different from it. I'm like, that's great. That's not what I was going for, but that's great. Yeah. Um, but I mean, with the vision being there, like you mentioned, it's like seeing the idea that you originally had fully realized, and then it's seeing an audience how they respond. I love watching films with an audience. Is there specific things about this film that I won't give away? But like watching them because we screened this a couple of times before. Sure. Um, seeing them with an audience, I was like, oh, that <laughs> I, that wasn't what I was intending, but that came across in a way that it was like, it works for it's the film. It's gotta be fun, though, when you have those moments where you're just like, oh, shit, like, they're seeing it like that? I yeah. never thought about that. It's like, I mean, even like, <laughs> we talked about like a writer's room environment. There's yeah. some things when you write, it's like, oh, I liked how you did that. I was like, I actually didn't, but I like what you're going with that. Like, that works. But I um, love that creative feeding off of each other. It's great. It's like, it's funny how that's exactly what directing is, I feel like. It's taking like, the script and blah, 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 and the subtext behind it. So it's like, maybe the subtext isn't what you would have drawn. Me personally would have drawn from it, but it's what someone else would have drawn. That's all directing is. You take a script and you're like, oh, what I want to say with this is blah, blah, blah. Yeah. And because now, especially I told you about the web series I did. Yep. And that was the first time I directed something that was not my script. And so taking that and like listening to what will had to say about the script and then i was like no i actually see it as a story of loss like all these people are functioning on a level of like they're broken people that brought them to this like secret society and that's what like this loss is what plagues their life until they confront it that's what you know they're gonna have to face with so it's interesting again writing a script and directing it versus just solely directing because it's a whole other thing yeah you know I think one of the takeaways from this conversation, apart from several things, I'm sure, when I when I listen to the playback, yeah, you know, I, I keep going back to the multifaceted thing. I'm bringing that up because yeah. I think we've touched on several things over the course of talking that are just showing the different ways that something in film in this industry can be interpreted, and that's one of the things that we love about it. Yeah, I, I, I mean, like it drives us crazy sometimes because you want there to be an answer, but at the same time, it opens everything yeah to, to possibilities that you wouldn't have ever known about had you not gone through this crazy process right because it's like directing again it comes back to directing but like directing is not one dimensional it's oh, not because no. it's no. like that was one of the biggest things i learned like viewing your characters as like the villain the yeah. good guy it's like you can't you have to view them like what do they want what do they need like right. what what drives them and that like even for you take like an awful human being, like Hannibal Lecter, like for example. Like, I mean, he's pretty cool, but also terrible. Yeah, but like, <laughs> that's the thing. It's yeah. like, it's only cool because he's made that way and he's directed that way. And yeah. the fact that like, he wants something just the same as we all want something. The minute you start viewing, marginalizing like a character or something, yeah. you, you limit yourself as a director. It's multifaceted, like to say. That's, I mean, literally, I might, <laughs> I might even have the title of the episode, multifaceted. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, I will absolutely say this, and then we'll go ahead and wind this down and just end it, is that's one of the things I think I really, really like about either the writing process or mostly direction, because I think that's where it comes from. I love that yourself could look at a script and totally see it. It's this. Someone else, completely different background, sees in a completely different movie. Yeah. Off the same words, off the same page, everything, but completely different interpretation. That's amazing to me. Absolutely. I love that. Now, does that always mean that your interpretation is better than this person's? I don't know. Yeah. That's for the audience to decide. 
And that's what we try to struggle through. That's why you try to just figure it out. Yeah. Like, is it going to connect with them and resonate? Do I get to do this more and get paid for it? Right. I hope. <laughs> we hope we get paid. <laughs> I'm, I'm dreaming for that day. <laughs> Dude, um, appreciate talking with you. Yeah. Um, Go ahead and plug in your stuff. I mean, where can people find you? I'll put all this in the description, of course. Absolutely. Uh, So I'm Joe Garcia again. I'm a filmmaker from Illinois. Uh, My socials, pretty much everything is at J underscore Garsha, and that's J-A-R-S-H-A. I have a YouTube channel. I have a website, all that shebang, but pretty much all the socials, and you'll be able to get from there. Instagram, you you name it, so... All right. That's like the easiest plug in the world. So appreciate everybody for listening. And we're going to get back and hopefully avoid the spicy cheese and go and see what else is happening over at, where, where are we at? Is this 173 Distillery? Yes, I think that's, is, the, that's yeah. the title. Okay. Yeah. Follow them too. I'll put their link in there uh, as well. So that's it. Okay. Thank you, sir. Yeah. Thanks. <laughs>